you have a copy of the Word of God, could you turn please to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. It's, uh, it's my intention to let you out a little earlier this morning, so uh, I will do my best in that regard give you the time that you may have with family or whatever your plans are this afternoon, but I encourage you to come again this evening and join with us, honor the Lord on His day. He does not uh, have, allow us to, to make alterations that make Him second. We should always seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and if we want to know His blessing, then we do that by honoring His day first and foremost. So, I trust that you will gather with us again this evening if you're able. But we're in John chapter 1. We've been moving through the text of Handel's Messiah. Uh, We come now to John 1 verse 29, and we wish to give consideration to it. It allows us to think about this time of the year and the condescension of the Son of God in a particular way, uh, focusing on, on other themes that are really important for us to keep in mind when we consider the incarnation. So John 1, we're going to read from verse 19. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John 1, 19. This is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. They said unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is, who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latch it I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth Arbor, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John saith Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man, which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending, and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw, and bear record, that this is the Son of God. Amen. When the reading there at verse 34. Let's still our hearts in prayer momentarily again. Ask the Lord to help us in His Word. God, we're thankful that we have a God who comes to sinners, and we are glad that you respond to the cry of the humble and the contrite, the proud you see afar off, 
but the lowly. You draw near to them. And so we pray that if there be one thing true of all of us here, it would be that we would be lowly and contrite and penitent. Let there be no pride that exists and continues in the heart of anyone that is here, because such will be cut off, such will never see God. So we pray, please give us humility of heart. I pray it for myself. Help me to have humility of heart. I need to see Thee, Lord. We all need to see Thee. We pray this day, as we give consideration of the great condescension of our God taking on flesh for us, that we be enabled to see Him and behold Him, to love Him and to serve Him all the days of our lives. So come, bless the Spirit of God, help us. We're so weak in this. Please strengthen us and give us sight to behold the Lamb, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask the the children a question since you didn't have Sunday school this morning. When Simeon, boys and girls, whenever he saw the infant Jesus, do you remember what he did? tells us that he came into the temple at that time when Jesus was being presented, and he did something. In fact, he did something that most, well, I don't know if it's most, but a number of mothers don't like very much, and that is when someone asks to take the child out of their arms. At least there's a little season whenever moms don't really want to do that. They want to hold on to the baby, keep it close, look after it in that way, and they feel a little Maybe some moms aren't like this, but some are a little possessive. But Simeon, kind of disregarding that, and some think maybe he was a priest, though there's no evidence of that. The Scripture doesn't say he was a priest. Yet, he comes and he takes the child. And he lifts that child up in his arms, and he blesses that child. And he says some very remarkable things. It tells us that he prayed in Luke 2, 29, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He saw something. He saw God's salvation in the face of that child. He took that child into his arms, he lifted it up, and he saw in the face of that infant the salvation of God. That's a remarkable thing. God had obviously shown that to him, and he had been encouraged to wait for it, and that he would not die until he had seen it, according as God had revealed it to him. But 30 years later, and we find someone doing the same thing. Someone that is recognizing that it is in the face of this one that you have salvation. John the Baptist is the forerunner. We've considered him a number of times on various occasions when we have studied the Word of God together. And once again, we have him before us in John chapter 1, and he is announcing something. He is saying in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He is once again calling upon men and women and boys and girls, Look in the face of this one. Behold this one. See this one. Make sure you do not miss this one. John's purpose in drawing attention to Jesus Christ is that men and women would see God's salvation. Not just see a person but see the salvation that is provided in this person. So he points not to the sin offerings in the temple, the bulls and the goats, or to the message that was communicated on the Day of Atonement. No, he points to the Lord Jesus on this occasion, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And if you take nothing else away from the message, 
If you have nothing else to meditate upon today, take this away. This is what the Lord still says to men and women today. He wants us to take time to consider the Lamb of God and to see Him, and to see in Him all the salvation that we need. Some have suggested that maybe John didn't really know what he was saying, that he wasn't quite sure the significance of looking at Jesus and saying the language specifically, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. I was reading one commentary, and it said in, the, in that commentary, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in chapter 129 likely involves multiple levels of meaning. And then it says, very possibly the Baptist here speaks better than he knows. Very possibly the Baptist here speaks better than he knows. Like, like Caiaphas. You remember when Caiaphas, later on in this gospel, and he makes a prophecy, and Caiaphas doesn't really know the significance of what he is saying. But, but that is not the case with John. That's not the same. John is not uttering words, and he doesn't understand the significance of the words that he utters. He knows full well what it is that he is saying. His own father, again, 30 years prior, Zechariah had declared at the birth of his son John in Luke 1, verse 68 and following, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spake by the mouth of His holy prophets, which have been since the world began. So Zechariah is able to look and say, This is salvation. It has come to the house of David, and it is all transpiring according to the word of the holy prophets. Here's a man who had studied the Old Testament, who knew his Scriptures, and then when he looks at Jesus Christ, he says, here is God's salvation. And John the Baptist was no different. His father, no doubt, had well instructed him in the time that he had with him, and he also had made keen study of the Word of God. So believing Jews knew who they were looking for. They knew who they were looking for, and they knew what it was that they preached. Certainly John did. And what he's calling men to do then, he knows exactly what it is he is saying. He's saying, look at Jesus for salvation. Look at Jesus for salvation. Now, there are all sorts of reasons to look at Jesus. And down through the history, you can't get away from the significance of Jesus Christ. It's impossible. He is, for all sorts of reasons, on the lips of men and women, prophets, or, or rather poets, and not prophets, obviously prophets, good prophets, but poets and those who, who write stories and those who philosophize and those who teach and instruct are constantly thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ and speaking of Him. They may make use of Him for their own ends. They may speak of Him in a positive way or in a negative way, way or in a way that admires certain aspects concerning Him, but you can't avoid Him. You cannot avoid Him. 2,000 years of humanity, and it cannot avoid speaking about Jesus Christ. We see it even today, even today. Even in the political realm, you'll find politicians making reference to Jesus Christ this time of the year probably more than most. And they may not know Him, and they may not believe in Him, and they may not truly understand what it is they're saying, but they can't avoid Him. They can't avoid Jesus Christ. But the question is, what, what do you think about Him? And do you really understand what it is that John was saying that day, Behold the Lamb of God 
which taketh away the sin of the world. The words are behind me, at least part of them. And every church that I have been a significant part of has had these words. The church where once I was saved, I became a member and served in that church in Balamone had these words. When I went to Calgary and I had no idea what the Lord was planning there, but wondering, was this the Lord's will for me to go there? And I walk in the door of that church and <laughs> there is, behold the Lamb of God. And then I come here and it's the very same thing. Behold the Lamb of God. It's a wonderful text, encapsulating all that there is for men to do. They are to look to Jesus Christ. But it's not just seeing Him with a physical eye. It's not just being there at the time of His birth. It's not just thinking about a nativity scene and placing characters in, in a right position that might emulate something of what happened on that occasion. It is actually seeing Christ in a way that saves the soul. That was John's concern, and that's my concern. So we're going to look at this text both this morning and this evening with the Lord's help, first considering the Lamb of God a portrait, and then tonight the Lamb of God a promise. So we're seeing the portrait, and we are to see Christ here as He is portrayed in this verse. Behold the Lamb of God. Tozer, A.W. Tozer, famous Christian writer, he says, Believing then what it is to believe, he's writing about what it is to believe, is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. It is lifting the mind to behold the Lamb of God and never ceasing that beholding for the rest of our lives. At first this may be difficult, but it becomes easier as we look steadily at His wondrous person quietly and without strain. Distractions may hinder, but once the heart is committed to Him, after each brief excursion away from Him, the attention will return again and rest upon Him like a wandering bird coming back to its window, end quote. And so this is what we do. We behold the Lamb. And for those of you saved, I mean, this is how you were saved. You look to Christ, and perhaps you wavered a little bit through the early part of your Christian journey, and even now at times you may find your heart wavering in various ways. But, but what is it that you keep coming back to? I mean, what, what do you keep resorting to when it comes to recalibrating your heart before God is looking to Christ. In fact, your walk with God depends upon a constant looking to Christ. Your experience of God depends upon a constant looking to Christ. Your enjoyment of God depends upon a constant looking to Christ. That was a fearful thing. We try to look God in the face and have no Jesus. But when we have Christ, all the fears go away. When we see Him as He is portrayed in the Word of God, and let's think about it as He is portrayed here. So very simply, just as I say, don't intend to keep you too long this morning. I want you to see, first of all, Abel's primitive lamb. Abel's primitive lamb. As we think of the portrait that John is portraying here, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. We begin thinking, well, what is he meaning by that? What, 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 what's he pointing back to? And, and I say one of the ways we might see it is in Abel's primitive lamb. If you go back to Genesis chapter 4, many of you will be familiar with the passage, I know, but in Genesis chapter 4, we have an account of Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel, and they have been taught to worship. Like every good parent who loves God will endeavor to do, they will put at the forefront, I need to teach my children to worship. Now, there's only so much we can do there. We can show them what they are to do, but 
them embracing the message as something only God can do in their hearts. And so you see that. You see how Cain, he does the outward, but there's something wrong in his heart. But Abel, he does the outward, but there's, 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 there's right in his soul. And you see in verse 4, Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock. So he's bringing a sacrifice to God. And he brings of the firstlings of his flock. He's a keeper of sheep, you see. And while Cain tilled the ground, Abel, Abel brings of the firstlings of the flock. So when, when John is declaring, behold, the Lamb of God, the, 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 Jew, the Jew's mind starts scanning through Scripture and thinking, where does Scripture speak of a lamb? And what does it say about the lamb? And you can't avoid, in Genesis 4, immediately having put before you a lamb, sacrificed by faith. It tells us in Hebrews 11 concerning Abel, Again, Hebrews 11, 4, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, by it he being dead yet speaketh. So he brings a more excellent sacrifice. And there are various reasons we could look into the, the significance of his sacrifice versus Cain, yet that's not my purpose this morning. The point is simply this, there's a lamb. There's a lamb in the scene. And so when John that day says, Behold the Lamb of God, in order to understand that language, the Jewish mind traces back through the Old Testament and hangs a thought upon Genesis 4 and thinks upon how Abel, that righteous one, the first man to enter into the presence of God, murdered by the hand of his brother, yet taken to be with God, Immediately. He was a righteous man. He knew God. And he expressed that knowledge of God by bringing a lamb and offering it before God. When Adam sinned, if you go back into the previous chapter, you'll find out that God took an animal, killed that animal, clothed Adam with its skin. And by this very act, God was teaching Adam. Adam was taught that sin causes death. He, he knew that already. The day you eat of the fruit, you will die. Sin causes death. An innocent substitute, however, has to be sacrificed in order to pay for that guilt and shame. And then on that basis, then, you can approach God. And so these are basic truths that are found all through the Scripture that Adam was taught by God as soon as he fell. And then Adam taught to Abel, and now the Scripture is taught to John, and John is now teaching to the crowds standing around him and saying, Behold the Lamb of God! And to this very day, the same instruction is coming to you. You need a substitute. You need something to take away your sin. And that one is Jesus Christ. So, we want to see Abel's primitive lamb when we look at this language. Behold the Lamb of God. Thinking right back to the beginning. God is saying, this is how you approach me. This is how you're forgiven. This is how you have access. This is how you have pardon. This is how you're reconciled to God. It's not religion in some outward form. It's not all sorts of good deeds and doing. It's not being benevolent and kind at Christmas time. It's not all of that. You need to see the Lamb of God. It's not coming to a service on December 25th and singing carols that 
that surround the theme of incarnation and all the rest of it. It's not just that. You need to see. You need to see Christ. The way Abel saw Him, the way John saw Him, and the way he preached of Him. Not only see Abel's primitive lamb, see Abraham's prophesied lamb. Again, when you think about lamb, behold the lamb of God, what are you seeing? Behold the lamb of God. What does that mean to look at the lamb of God? What has God taught us about the lamb? And now your mind goes to Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, you may turn there if you're not familiar with it, but in Genesis 22, you have that patriarch Abraham. And oh, what a man of God he was. And he, he, is, he, is, he is the father of the faithful. He, he, is, he becomes an example of two believers of what it is to walk by faith. Now, he doesn't always get it right, which makes him in some way a comforting example because we look at him and we see him stagger. He, he, is, he is in idolatry and Ur of the Chaldees and he, he gets a call from God to, to leave his house and his kindred and to follow to, to go at the command of God in obedience and leave his kindred and so on, which he does, but, but he, his, his dad tags along. And so his dad tags along, and they, they, they're making their way to Canaan, but then they stop in Haran, and they stay in Haran, and it seems like they can't get out of Haran until his father, Terah, dies. And once his father's out of the way, then Abraham, he remembers, I'm not meant to be here, I'm meant to be in Canaan. And so he obeys, and he goes there. And so he's there, and he's again continuing on. A famine comes into, into the land, and that tests him. God has called him to Canaan, but now there's a famine in Canaan. What does that mean? Should I leave? Well, he weighs it up and comes to a conclusion, I need to get out of here. And so off he goes. He goes to Egypt, and again, you see him stumble. You see him stumble. He's called to Canaan to stay there, but he's found in Egypt. And it puts under great jeopardy the whole plan of what God is doing in his life. And you see Pharaoh having an eye for his wife, Sarah, and all that goes on in God's intervention to preserve him. And on and on it goes. You see, this, this, this man is being tested. Believer, God will test you. He will test you in your walk of faith. But the ultimate test Abraham was to experience is whenever God says, I want your only son, Isaac. Go and offer him on Mount Moriah. And what a night that was for Abraham. What a night trying to think, what what is God asking me to do here? Sacrifice my son? The son of promise? Know how his mind reeled, no doubt, thinking about that. And we're told that that day he got up early. And the various reasons why he might have gotten up early. One might be he didn't sleep that night. I mean, you're being told to go and offer your promised, this, this, this son of promise, go and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And he's trying to figure out what God is asking him to do. I mean, he knows what he's asking him, but what, what, what is this? And the other reason he may have gotten up early is he had, he had concluded exactly what it was that God was asking him to do. He realized that I just have to obey here. This promise was given by God, and God has the power to bring it to pass, not me. I tried that before. Abraham had tried to bring all the fulfillment of of promise to pass before, and Sarah had said, oh, here, here's Hagar. Raise up seed through Hagar. And again, that was a disaster. When man takes into his own hands what God alone can do, 
It's disastrous. And people do it all the time, don't they? I mean, any salvation that excludes Christ or suggests it's Christ plus anything does the very same thing. It's disastrous. It will land you in hell. So Abraham gets up that morning and he takes his his boy up that journey to Moriah. And it tells us it tells us what he what he says on that occasion. He 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 believes what God that God will do something. When Isaac asks him about a sacrifice in Genesis twenty two verse eight, Abraham replies, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself a lamb. This is what I say. This is I want you to see in the language of John Abraham prophesying of this very thing. Abraham prophesied that God would provide a lamb. Now, again, I don't know if Abraham fully understood what was going to transpire because you read in Hebrews 11 that he knew that God was able to raise his son again. So if God is really asking me to do this, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. And he believed that God would do it. Now you read the narrative and you find out what actually happens. God stops him midway and and then he points out there's a ram. There's a ram caught in a thicket. Offer that instead. And you get this whole message of substitution. Communicate it again. Like something being in the place of. Men and women, that's what's being communicated by John. And you're never to think, you're never rather to forget about that when you consider that child. In whatever scene, whatever display, whether it be the nativity scenes that are commonly uh, constructed or whether you see him in the temple being offered, I I want you to see what, what Simeon saw. Not just an infant born who's the son of God, but this is God's salvation. Behold the Lamb of God. See the Lamb of God. If you don't see the Lamb of God, you'll perish. Oh, what happened in Abraham's life was a little window into the greatest Bible text, perhaps, that we know. That when it comes to our hearts, we think, what's the greatest Bible verse? What comes to your mind, I'm sure many of you would say John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 is rooted in Genesis 22. John 3.16 has its significance in what Abraham experienced in Genesis 22. Abraham, take your son, because this is what I'm going to do. Only there will be no intervention at the 11th hour. There'll be no halting of the slaying of the son at the last moment. My son will die. Behold the lamb. So see Abel's primitive lamb. See Abraham's prophesied lamb. See Israel's Passover lamb. This evening we'll develop this a little more. I'll not spend much time in it, but turn to Luke 1 just for a moment. Luke chapter 1. Again, John's father, he knew that the the Messiah was the Passover. 
I'll show that in just a moment, but Luke 1, verse 71. And here you have Zechariah is filled with the Holy Ghost, verse 67, and he begins to prophesy. And he has visited his people and raised up a horn of salvation. But you come to verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Friends, you can't read that without immediately thinking about the Exodus. This is exactly what happened. The people in bondage, they're in slavery to the Egyptians. Their cry goes up, God, remember the covenant you made with our fathers. Why did they want God to remember that covenant? To deliver us from our enemies. To set us free from those that have us in bondage. And so that's what you have right here, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all that hate us. Perform the mercy promised to our fathers. Deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and so on. To serve Him without fear. What, what, was, what was Moses' word? That we might leave and go out and serve our God. Zechariah, Zechariah sees the infant Christ and he, he is thinking about always th- seeing his son being born and thinking of all those themes of what God is doing in this moment. And his mind goes to the Exodus. And he sees exactly what was accomplished there. And how did that deliverance come then? That's where we come to the Passover lamb. Because in Exodus chapter 12, you see how it is that they are delivered. Go to Exodus 12. Exodus chapter 12, just to see a few things before we close here this morning. Exodus chapter 12. You have all the plagues. You come to the final plague where the firstborn are going to be killed by God. You may think this is very harsh. Why would God act in this way? This is a wicked nation. They, they killed children anyway. There's all sorts of false worship and idolatry and wickedness that transpired. I think some people, they, they read the Bible and, and they don't understand what's going on in these nations. So if God is being harsh, have you no idea of the degree of depravity of what they did. God is coming and showing them who truly is sovereign. And so, the people of God are told, what are they told? Well, they're told to, verse 3, speak ye unto the children, unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. Now you see, Whenever John's pointing to the lamb, you have to be thinking about this lamb too. Thinking about the significance of this lamb. What lamb? The Passover lamb. The lamb that signified what God was going to do for His people, outlined even in that language prophesied by Zechariah. Look at verse 5. You see the sinlessness of the lamb. The lamb shall be without blemish. A meal of the first year. So it's a lamb without blemish. So this is, again, typifying the sinlessness of Christ. You're beholding a lamb, but not just any lamb. This is the sinless lamb. 
There's also the sacrifice of the lamb in verse 6. You shall keep it up until the 14th day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. There will be a sacrifice of the lamb. And then verse 12, you find the substitution of the lamb. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of the Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the place shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. So there's substitution. See, you've taken the lamb and killed it and sprinkled this blood upon the doorpost of your house. And when I see that blood, I see a substitute. I see a sacrifice made in the stead of the firstborn of the household. So when John says, behold the lamb, this is what comes to mind, men and women. These, these truths are flooding into the mind of the Jew. They're concerned, what, what's John saying? Behold the lamb. What is this cryptic message? But it's not so cryptic if you know your Old Testament. All the imagery comes into their mind. It begins to make sense. The puzzle's all being filled in. The last piece is coming into view. When God takes on human flesh, stands before men that he might live for them and die for them. And praise God, rise again from the dead. Yes, this, this is the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Our goal as we close this Lord's Day is to see Jesus. To really see Him. Now, many of you are saved. You profess to know Him. And you say, preacher, I know the Lord. I see him. Preacher, my sins are forgiven. I know they are. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses away all my sin. Preacher, I've lived the Christian life now for some decades. I've had my ups and downs. Times when I've been living the way I should, times when I have not. But I'm found here this morning and I can say an amen to what you're saying. I have looked and I have life, life eternal. I see the Lamb. I know the Lamb. He is mine. And that is what I want all of you to be able to say. I don't want anyone to be able to walk away and say, this Christmas day, I still don't know what it's all about. Or, I know but I'm not really interested. Not interested. Not interested. Interested in the things of this world. Interested in all sorts of hobbies and pastimes and employments and people. Interested in politics. Interested in fleeting things that make no mark upon the world and not interested in this, this individual that that even those who don't respect Him, love Him, and believe in Him, can't ignore. How can you not have an interest in Him? The German reformer Martin Luther he encourages us in words I'll read in just a moment. 
that really in some way the incarnation, the incarnation reminds us to look at the glory of salvation from a posture of humility. It's, it's not seeing the salvation as it is in the final expression of it. It's seeing in its most unassuming form. An infant. An infant from Bethlehem. With no, no wealth, no power, no, no connections. Except, well, he's from the line of David, but... No one really pays attention to that anymore. From that posture we to see the glory of what God has done. And Luther says, The true Christian religion is incarnational and thus does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. You must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb. Embrace the infant and the virgin child in your arms and look at him, born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens and having authority over all things. Yes, but you begin at the bottom. See, when he comes and glory and splendor at the end, when He ties up the loose ends of this world, when He manifests His undeniable glory, you will see power on display the like of which you can't even imagine. But it will be too late then. Real faith sees the glory of the infant. The glory of God incarnate brought into the world via the woman of a virgin. If you can't see that and believe that, it doesn't matter what else you see and believe. You can't see the Lamb of God. May the Lord help you to see. Let's bow together in prayer. As you go to your homes today, as you sit around the table, as you give thanks for your meals, make sure that you, you see Him, you see the Lamb, you see the one bearing away our sin. We'll think more about the bearing away of sin tonight with the Lord's help. So come and hear the full sermon preached by John that day, but make sure you see Him. Don't miss Him. Without Him, you can never be saved. Without Him, you'll never be in heaven. Without Him, you'll have no peace. You'll have no rest. Lord, we pray, bless Thy Word. We are thankful that on this day we may gather and remember the glorious condescension of the Son of God made flesh, taking our humanity, that He might live as we are unable to live, that he might die in a way that we are, we would be too fearful to die. God, we pray, give believing. 
give believing hearts to each one here. Give the eye of faith to, to see and behold the Lamb of God in this place. And may you bless those that are struggling to see. Oh, they're struggling to see. Gracious Spirit of God, do the work only you can do. Give sight to the blind. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.